0: Uh, We're going to talk about a couple of things. Uh, My name's Will. My name's Josh. My name's Sean. And uh, first of all, Josh is going to talk about Oxfam.
1: Yeah, so it's been in the news quite a lot over the last week or so, the allegations that Oxfam staff have been committing sexual assault in Haiti. And I am concerned the response is disproportionate to what has been allegedly committed in Oxfam. So if it's okay, I'm just going to run through the allegations quickly. The Times has alleged that Oxfam staff in Haiti used prostitutes who may have been underage. Oxfam investigated this in 2011. Four staff members were sacked and three resigned. Claims of underage girls being used were declared unproven. So reports for an investigation were published at the time. And I didn't know this was reported in the press. No, I didn't see it. So a report was published on the BBC and in the newspapers that Oxfam had fired staff in Haiti for sexual misconduct. So I just want to throw that out there. That's yeah, I didn't know that, we, no. can, we can look back at that. How long um, ago was that, sorry? So that was in 2011, after the earthquake in 2010. The Charity Commission admits that it's aware, and I've got, I've got the exact quote here from the Charity Commission because I think it's worth reading. So this is recently, the Charity Commission said, In August 2011, Oxfam made a report to the Commission about an ongoing internal investigation into allegations of misconduct by staff members involved in their Haiti programme. It explained that the misconduct related to inappropriate sexual behaviour, bullying, harassment and the intimidation of staff. The report to us stated there had been no allegations or evidence of any abuse of beneficiaries. So that was at the time. And I'm kind of worried that what the story is about now, and I realise that we're three men, what are we outraged about now? Are we outraged about the cover-up? Because it seems like there wasn't a cover-up, or certainly not a big cover-up. Or are we concerned about the crimes, the use of prostitutes? In which case, I'm not sure that staff using prostitutes is worthy of this much controversy. In large parts of Europe, prostitution is legal. Mm. It's clearly an abuse of a position of authority, but 7,000 people have cancelled their regular donations to Oxfam. The CEO has been called up to Parliament, and this doesn't compare to stuff that's happened in other organisations. The Church of England, Bishop Peter Ball, the Church of England's own report said that the failure to pass six of the letters to police must give rise to a perception of deliberate concealment. I don't remember bishops leaving the Church of England. The Catholic Church, a Vatican official, stated that we know that in the last 50 years, somewhere between 1.5% and 5% of the Catholic clergy has been involved in sexual abuse cases. This is a more severe crime than using prostitutes, but we're not seeing the same reaction against these organisations. The President's Club, there's no ramifications for that. Nobody who attended is being driven out of their jobs in the private sector. And yet we know that prostitution was happening at that event. So I'm worrying that we're persecuting Oxfam, but we're not persecuting people who probably deserve it.
0: Why was it reported again in the Times recently, though? Why is it suddenly come cool up again? Has something new come out, or is it just... They've sat on the story and they're, they're just publishing it now Do for some reason? Do you know what?
1: I can't figure it out. Mm. The, o- the only thing that's new... As, as far as I can tell, is that there's the allegations of the prostitutes being underage. Ah, mm. uh, okay. And, <clears throat> and so that wasn't disclosed at the time. But that allegation was unproven and Oxam investigated. So we also need to bear in mind that publishing unproven allegations led to a Welsh Assembly member killing himself this year. Yeah. Or sorry, it was in in the last few months. So oh, yeah. So, you know, there's a cost to doing this as well. And it just... I'm, I'm struggling to see that all of the attention that's been brought on it is just. A, I don't know what justifies it. It's-
2: it was reasonably high up within the, the structure of Oxfam, I don't know if he was ex- an executive or something like that. But he, he was at Haiti and he was caught up in the allegations and he resigned and then got a job with another char- charitable organisation in Africa and was given a favourable reference.
1: Yeah, and he'd previously been in Chad, and there's been allegations yeah. about conduct in Chad as well. So I would I would agree to that, but I just again
2: that could be a reason as to why this has cropped up again. Yeah. You know, can, yeah.
1: So this Belgian is a Belgian guy, and his name yes. is Van Hergersergen yeah. or something that I can't remember, and I didn't make a note of. So not, sorry, not sorry, Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> but he he was named at the time, so I found the BBC report. Of this Oxfam report into misconduct in Haiti, he is named. So the mm-hmm. fact that he resigned because of sexual misconduct is public record. So even that, I don't know where. But that
2: that still doesn't make sense as to why he was given a favourable reference from Oxfam, because if he's resigned because of allegations of sexual misconduct, I mean, for one, you're assuming there was an inve- investigation into his misconduct, not just that there was allegations. So if there was an investigation. Where are the results of that investigation? Have they been published?
1: Yeah, so the full report hasn't been published. Oxfam have said that they're going to disclose it with the Haitian government. And it has been now been published in a redacted form. But I, I think there's a bit of a problem with the timeline of this. So I think when you are saying about he got a favourable reference from Oxfam...
2: I thought it was. I thought
1: that's what, that's what I I think what happened is he worked for a previous company or charity called Merlin... Right, okay. and i think there were allegations there then he moved to oxfam in chad and from merlin got a favorable review so I, I don't think it's oxfam that's at fault with that right okay and of course i don't want to say that oxfam doesn't have a responsibility to the people of haiti no. just just that we need to be careful here so the money that oxfam gets from sort of foreign aid money is now on hold And the people that suffer from that aren't the executives at Oxfam who will go and get other jobs in other big organizations. Mm. They are people who are impoverished around the world. And they are the people of Haiti as well. People of Haiti will suffer from these decisions. Only a few weeks ago, Oxfam was talking about how we had forgotten about Haiti and how the response in Haiti was there were too many small organisations that were too narrowly focused. The relief effort wasn't organised well enough. There was no umbrella governance. So Haiti is a prime example where we need Oxfams. If not Oxfam, then other organisations. And I have just worry that this is an excuse to, to, to beat someone for the sake of it.
0: Are you saying it's worth, because of the good they're doing... It's worth what's gone on behind the scenes potentially because the good outweighs the bad. Yeah, it, and that's the situation basically.
1: Yeah, it, it's difficult because I, I don't, I don't want to say that. Yeah, and I'm very close to saying
0: that. <laughs> well, everything at the moment is framed around sexual assault, and you know what's going on with the government. That like Damian Green resigned a couple of months ago because because of something on their lines. Looking, and at, he's, up, and looking he's,
1: at pornography, I think. Yeah, yeah
0: but <coughs> the whole frame of Harvey Weinstein—it's caused all this. To explode. Wasn't just looking at pornography with him, though, was Wait, it? It he? was lied. lying
2: about looking at pornography. He was
0: on, he was on... What's Thousands the, of times, what's at least today? hundreds. The 20th of February today, he was on uh, the Today programme today. Um, mm. Again, not representing the government, but working for a think tank. And that was two months ago that happened. So it proves at that level, things can be forgotten. Yeah. Or in reality, the people in them positions don't really care, but they have to act like they care, And then slowly they can
1: come back in and get another jobs yeah. and... You're right. And, it's all a club, basically. Yeah. And this is why I'm, I am worry, because we hit Oxfam, we say Oxfam's a bad organisation, the people involved with it are bad people, and and to a certain extent, that is true. The fact that you do good work in one area doesn't mean that you, can, you get carte blanche to do what you like in mm. another. But what does worry me is that the way we react needs to bear in mind what Oxfam is, what it does. There was a really good person on Newsnight recently who was talking about this he was very critical of Oxfam. But he said, if Oxfam didn't exist, we'd have to create it. And I think that kind of sums it up. is that If we destroy Oxfam, we're going to need to create a new Oxfam. Mm-hmm. And we should bear that in mind, that destroying it has a cost. And that cost, no nobody will thank us in the long run for over-punishing for over punishing Oxfam and over-hyping this story.
2: In one, one point I want to pick up on quickly was you said about staff using prostitutes i mean you know I, I, obviously the allegations about using underage prostitutes no one's ever going to say that that's an okay thing but that you know the idea that prostitution you know it's, it's legal across most of europe it's is is it really that big of a thing well i mean isn't there an argument to be made there that these people that were being used as prostitutes really weren't doing it by choice you know their houses their homes their society has been completely destroyed they don't have any other way of making any money. So if anything, isn't that a bit of, um, a bit of manipulation? Yeah, it's, a it's, it's,
1: it's exploitative behavior, yeah. and it's not appropriate for anyone involved with an organization like Oxfam to be doing. But again, this is, this is all about proportionality. I, I don't think I want to say that using prostitutes is okay. I, I don't think I would go that far. But what I would say is that we need some proportionality in this. And this has all come about because there's been a growing sort of awareness campaign in the last few years, which has involved the rape of children, uh, the rape of women, and some sort of young boys and men as well, in all sorts of institutions from football clubs to religious organisations to the BBC to, to Hollywood. But what we also need to do is that sexual misconduct is not equal in all cases. And when we claim that it is, we are letting the most severe offenders get away, in a sense. By lumping, and and this kind of goes beyond Oxfam, I guess, and I'd say that prostitution is not at this level, but by lumping an inappropriate comment in with forcing penetration on someone, what you do is you over-vilify at one end and you let somebody else get away scot-free, as it were. Harvey Weinstein is completely forgotten this week. And yet this is somebody who, who conspired to repeatedly rape people. And so to me, he is worse than any of these people at Oxfam, as has been proven so far. In fact, as has been alleged so far.
0: But, yeah. but like I so said before, Harvey Weinstein, everyone knew about him in them circles. It was commonly known what he was up to. Big movie stars supposedly knew about it. There's jokes made at awards ceremonies about him. Same with Kevin Spacey. Well, that's it. People knew, but people, don't. it's different. Maybe it's that's... the whole thing about this at this moment in time with social media. It's harder to get away than things. This is why it's coming out a lot more now because generations ago you could do it and hide it. Well, it was institutionalized, Now it's harder because there's it? more ways to get it out. Yeah. yeah.
1: But I mean, Jimmy Savile. Uh, Rolf Harris. I mean, historical sex offences, uh, sex, historical sex offenders have been have been named and shamed in recent years. So it's it's not just like that we can't get away with it. It's that we believe that when people say it, there's more accountability. Yeah. I think the police are better with it as well. Well, well now thinking? they are, yeah. But
0: years ago, they wouldn't have done anything, I guess, would they? And this is the thing. Probably, yeah. These stories have been out there for years. People have gone to police, but they've probably gone nowhere. And this is why it's yeah, With social media, people are going on Twitter and getting campaigns. and well, It was only, I think it was,
2: was in it 1991, that rape within marriage was outlawed. So, you know, I yeah. mean, even in, in... I thought it 20s, was more
1: recent, even. It
2: could be. It was, it was, it was the early 90s. But, it, but you're right, it's yeah. disgustingly
1: yeah. late. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, massively so. What worries me specifically about the Oxfam thing, again, though, is that there's a movement within certain parts of British politics, specifically UKIP and the Conservative Party, that want to abolish foreign aid. They've spent a decade bashing immigrants and accusing them of all sorts of crimes from causing problems in the education, to the NHS, to to all sorts of things. And what worries me is that we've now evolved from being uh, hostile to immigrants in our own country and the movement has become, let's cut foreign aid. And actually, I share some solidarity with... The people in this country but i also share solidarity with the people of the world and if i'm paying taxes then i want some of that tax money to go to benefit people in my country who are struggling but around the world who are struggling and oxfam is a great mechanism for that and i think the the newspapers that are running on this some of them have precedent for you know stoking up these anti-foreign aid agendas and there's another part of me that just thinks well look let's just hold back let's not make any rash decisions Maintain your direct debit to Oxfam for now, and let's just see what happens. But also, to add on to that,
2: the, the same newspapers also put forward a specific anti-immigration agenda, yet there's an argument to be made about foreign aid being used which would actually limit immigration or emigration from these particular countries to your home country because it's improving the life- living standards of them in their own country.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to tread too far down no, that route, yeah. but but yeah, there's there's I would say that The arguments against immigration are irrational. The arguments against foreign aid are irrational. But by stoking up fear in this way and resentment, you you kind of get the same effect. It doesn't matter if it's rational.
0: So in this part of the podcast, uh, Sean's going to talk about universal basic income. Okay, so I uh, give you a
2: very, very brief bit of uh, history about universal basic income. credited to Thomas Paine in the eighteenth century. He argued for a basic payment to be given to uh, all adults after I think it was the age of twenty one as a, as a form of compensation. Moving on from that, the 20th century, uh, Dennis Milner, he argued argued for a state bonus because it would help to fight poverty. And now more recently, it's in the news because uh, Nicola Sturgeon's announced in 2017 the beginning of experiments with a uh, universal basic income in areas such as Fife. Uh, and even more recently, in uh, the beginning of this year... The Adam Smith Institute, a uh, well-known right-wing think tank, uh, argued that universal basic income is not only feasible, it's desirable, and it's also financially sustainable. For the arguments as to why there should be a universal basic income, that is as a safety net for, for workers. Not only would it allow them to take the time to retrain if they're not happy in their current job, it could also it could empower workers by giving them the ability to step back from a job if they're not happy with how they're working. There's been an argument that it would help people with their mental health because they wouldn't have to have the issues with uh, worrying if they're ever, ever going to make their payments to their mortgage or whatever. And also, it should greatly reduce bureaucracy by reducing benefits and making it a far more streamlined system. And the main reason why it's in the news so much is because of the threat of automation. So with a lot of jobs now becoming automated, I mean, for one thing, you only really need to look at the online grocery shopping that you can do now, like a Cardo. For the majority of that, that's all done by machines. And then the only human interaction with the shopping is the delivery driver and the person who checks the bags at the end of the machine.
1: I'm surprised that they even check the bags. Yeah, I know. How many times does that go wrong?
2: (laughs) Yeah. But then, of course, you've got, you know, driverless cars that are going to be coming into play soon. You've also got uh, Domino's announcing that by, I think, 2020, they're going to have a driverless delivery truck that just delivers PC to your house, which... Black Mirror. Yeah, I wouldn't complain of that. (laughs) Of course, I've got a couple of cons against it. It would be expensive. And also there's an argument about the incentives and handouts. So handing out money to people won't give them an incentive to work.
0: I think that bit about people not wanting to work is... People have worked and people have wanted to work. But the argument against it always is, oh, people just get lazy and they'll sit at home and collect the money. But really, what I've read about it is that people do work, people want to work, and most people don't want to sit at home all day and do nothing.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say from any of the examples that I've seen, mainly because, I mean, one example which is running at the moment is Finland. So they're doing an experiment at the moment with UBI where they've paid, I think it's 2,000 people across Finland, so they're on unemployment benefit. They're getting €560 a month, and whether or not they get a job, they still get that benefit, and it doesn't get reduced. I think that's being trialled over a two-year period. So €560 a month is not enough to live off
1: in Finland. It's below what you'd call the living wage. So there is, there's currently universal basic income structures in places like Finland. There's not any trials that would allow you to subsist just on that income yet, are there? Not that I'm aware of. Right.
2: The one in Alaska, so that's been going for 50 odd years, that's to do with the state-owned oil company. It's almost like a sovereign wealth fund.
1: Right, so that would probably be more similar to things like Iceland, state-owned industries that provide yeah. money for the taxpayer.
2: So with Alaska, you have to have been, you have to have lived there for at least a year and plan to live there for many more years, and then you get a dividend at the right. end of the year. And I think the last payment was one thousand nine hundred dollars. Okay. So you know,
1: I really like this idea. I think it's great, and I'm a massive Thomas Paine fan, as you oh, as you oh, frequently. Here we go. <laughs> what dreams, wet dreams. Wet dreams. <laughs> Just a warning now. Thomas Paine is going to come up a lot in these podcasts. <laughs> so it's interesting there because. There's two competing names for this. One is uh, universal basic income, but the other one is a global resource dividend.
2: Okay, Don't know about that one. Um,
1: so the global resource dividend is probably a closer approximation to what Thomas Paine proposed because it is based on this idea that property can only legitimately be the stuff that labor has created. So if I pick up a stick and I whittle it into a spoon, I own that spoon because. I've put my labour into the wood. But you can't do that with things like oil or coal or steel or the the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere or the water in the oceans. Mm. So the idea is that because those are things that are created without the application of labour, we all have an equal claim to them. And that's kind of Thomas Paine's argument. So I know that you've been looking at it from a kind of ends justification. there is a very strong justification that this is how we should organize property and then we fund the resource dividend from oil prices.
2: I don't disagree with that in the slightest and I don't actually disagree with the idea of having a universal basic income. What I disagree with is the examples or the attempts that are being run at the moment or the ones that I've looked at anyway. So for example Finland there isn't enough money to live off. So in my argument would be to have a universal basic income, it should be the minimum required for you to live where you are. So it isn't really providing you the security that, that in my mind, a universal basic income should.
1: Yes, yeah, this is good, because I think that example gets to the crux of our disagreement, because you think that a universal basic income should reflect... The subsistence wage that is needed in that society. I mean, subs- yeah. space, so, land, subsistence. You so, spend the money how you want So you're land. justifying on this, the the cost of subsistence. Yeah. I would justify it the other way around. Okay. So uh, the, one of the big resources that I think we should nationalize is land. And then we charge everyone that uses land rent. And that rent then is put into a pot. We divide it equally. And whatever that comes to, you get. That is the model that is advocated by Thomas Paine, by Henry George, by more recent people like Thomas Parga and Philippe Van Paris, Hillel Steiner. But you're right, Ed Miliband, who was on Newsnight a few days ago, talking about this and advocating it, was looking at it from this ends point of view. I think that's the wrong way to go about it. But I agree that we should implement it.
0: It's so politically sensitive that... No one's willing to go all in on it. That's the problem. But like, them, unless they've got a really big majority in government, will never go for it, 100%, unless something forces them into it. The are terrified. Like, you talk about land. It's, like, impossible to do because so much wealth is invested in it and so many people have money that is dedicated to land. Like, I work for a developer, and they have so much land banked all over Greater Manchester and it's worth millions and millions and millions. And ne- they won't give up without a fight. And that's the situation that we're in. And it's hard to get out of it unless something drastic
1: happens. You're right. There are a lot of vested interests. But I, I will maintain, I will fight the good fight. And, I'll, and I will advocate it to the hill. But implementing it is going to be a difficult thing to do. And in a lot of ways is really counterintuitive. You're right. There is an argument. If you give people free money, they will do nothing. And it is quite hard to overcome that. And so we need to build up an evidence base. And I am prepared to work with the Ed Milibans and the Nicholas Sturgeons. But this idea has is receiving a hell of a lot of traction. And I don't know where it's coming from. It's disappointed me because I quite like going back to the 18th century texts and stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, that, but
0: it? it's not coming from anywhere that can do something about it, though. That's the issue, isn't it? It's not coming oh, from Nicholas. places. Well, Nicholas I disagree. Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah. Yeah. Nicholas Sturgeon. Um, I mean, How there's... much power has she got? In reality, what can well, she do? Well, yet? actually, no, 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 no because there's
2: a, there's a good point about that, because she doesn't actually have control of her uh, in for welfare. That's not devolved. Yeah. The money that she's used to put forward these experiments, I think is £250,000 out of a separate budget. Um, what, for the scheme? Yeah, no, but it? the thing is, is it's, so it's very small areas and it's very small... You know, amounts of people in comparison to the rest of Scotland. It's not not been rolled out across Scotland, just like the one in Finland. That's small pockets and the selected people. So it's two thousand people, I but think, in Finland that they're doing it. This a bit.
0: is what I'm saying. It's not being given enough push no, for no, it no. to really work. Yeah, it's, no, it's, been, it's like it's you been say that to fail.
2: You say that though, but that, that's that's not entirely true because there's an experiment that's going on at the moment in the Netherlands. Mm. There's also one that's been pushed out in Ontario, Canada. They all differ slightly, but they aren't just small little private groups that are doing it. It's also being run out by governments.
1: There are NGOs that are advocating this. Henry George is another person who's really worth reading on this, actually. But Scotland is a great example because there's a quasi-governmental body in Scotland called something like the Land Reform Group or Land Reform Committee or something. And they are examining this and they have been looking at land ownership as one of these things that could generate the fund for this income. And the legitimacy of owning land in certain ways, and looking back to people like Payne, and I even emailed them actually to like because I heard them on the radio, and occasionally, like Newsnight this week, we decided to talk about this topic, and then Ed Miliband comes on and Newsnight and talks about it. Mm. So it is it's cropping up here and there, and. It's one of these great ideas because it transcends left and right. Yeah, it does. We have certain socialist movements are advocating positions like it. And then then we have people on the right. We have the Adam Smith It's not just just on the right. It's on the far right. It's a libertarian. It's a libertarian idea. Absolutely. So Hayek is quoted as, as endorsing this policy. And it's a bit of a kind of generous quotation. But... It concurs with ideas that Hayek and Mises and these real hardcore neoliberals endorse because it supports the free market.
2: Well, exactly, because it it reduces bureaucracy, it getting rid of the majority of benefits, except for, you know, I don't think anyone's actually come out as saying that they're against disability benefit and that should be scrapped as well. But that's, that's the interesting thing as well. So uh, recently the RSA, the uh, Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, they came out in the past few days to say, Basically, they proposed for everybody in the country to get £10,000 each. They're arguing to go right down Norway's route developing a, a sovereign wealth fund. Do you know how much Norwegian sovereign wealth fund is worth?
1: Some of these oil-producing countries have got wealth funds that would blow your mind. Over, I think you're about to do this. Over
2: $1 trillion. Yeah, see? <laughs> <laughs> but, so at least they could, could fund, the thing. thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and, yeah, but is... and they got a country of like £5 million. I don't, don't know the exact. It's figure, a lot, it's it's a lot, lot different from the yes. UK. Uh, yeah. Norway brings up as an example for the UK to follow, but it's a hell of a different country.
1: But and, and this is also the thing, actually, because from my point of view, what Norway is doing is illegitimate because it's private ownership in the sense that it is restricting the ownership of their supply of oil to people born in a particular corner of the globe. If we're really going to argue for a universal basic income. And if, as I would advocate, that we fund this through the sale of what should be commonly owned resources, minerals, land, oxygen, water, these things that are available to all of us, then it should be divvied up on a global scale. We have at our fingertips a means to eradicate poverty worldwide. We we allow people to fence off land and drill for oil and reap the rewards. So, Norway, far from being a good example of UBI, they're bloody bastards.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Norway's not there. I'm pretty sure they don't have a UBI policy, or even an experiment. But I mean, I'll, I'll just talk briefly about Ontario and Canada. They don't talk about a universal basic income, what they're doing is called a, a guaranteed minimum income. It's slightly different, mainly because it's only targeted at people that are below their sort of that,
1: That's it. Can I interview you? Because this is a question I wanted to ask you. Yeah. So there is such a thing as a negative income tax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. trialled
2: across America in the 70s, wasn't
1: it? Oh, was it? I, I wasn't yeah. aware of that. But so that's... Is, is that what they've got no. in Ontario? No. Okay. So, so a negative income uh, tax system is that you say um, there's a £10,000 and anybody that earns less than a ten thousand pounds, the government makes it up. So you oh, know, know how that. the tax yeah. system now is like graduated. So between certain bands, you, got, you earn, earn over yeah. Data. So once yeah, you yeah. hit the whatever threshold is, you pay forty percent tax, and below that, yeah. Well, yeah. basically, there's a bottom one, and it's if you earn less than that, then the government gives you money.
0: Ah, okay. So yeah, it, yeah. it
1: kind of has the same effect as some UBI models, because the worst off get money from the government but it's not means tested and it's an alternative to ubi so i was just i was interested i mean this is this is
2: really i mean it's been reported on as being ubi but it's not it's for people that are out of work they're they're looking into they're trying to assess other things than they are in finland so in finland they're primarily looking at getting people who aren't in work into work but in in canada they have to be out of work they get 75% of what they call the low income measure of that particular area, which is 50% of the median income right. for that area. So the most they can get is about just under 17000 Canadian dollars per individual. And anything that they then earn, for every dollar that they earn, they lose 50 cents of the benefit. As soon as they start earning over $48,000, the benefit's removed.
1: That's a negative income system.
2: Okay,
1: but that's how a negative income
2: tax works. Right. The point I'm trying to make about that is one of the main benefits that I see from having UBI is reducing bureaucracy, reducing costs by removing our many state benefits and that kind of stuff. But this could be made so much easier. If it's it's the UK, if we're going to do £10,000 or however much or £500 a month, send it to everybody and then just get rid of jobseekers' allowance, get rid of whatever. But don't have it means tested. To me, that's just counterintuitive, because then at the end of the day, you're going to have to have some kind of bureaucracy to consistently means test things. You know, just...
1: Okay, what happens if the amount allocated through your system of UBI is insufficient because of external factors that are not your fault, such as having a disability?
2: There isn't a single UBI example which is saying getting rid of disability benefit.
1: But which, which them, means tests are you removing then?
2: As this one says, so it's the one in Ontario, Canada. So it's assessing your income constantly to ensure that you're earning X amount. And as soon as you hit over a level, it's removing money. You know, that kind of means testing.
1: Wouldn't that just happen? Like we have PAYE. So as you earn, taxes removed. And similarly, as you earn, money would be added. So automating that system, you wouldn't need a bureaucratic means assessment because your paycheck... I suppose.
2: No, no. I don't know. Does that just go through, I don't know, some kind of computer system.
0: Yeah, but it's a, it's, right. a it's a mathematical right. formula. What happens with people who are higher earners, they get paid in different ways. So right now, instead of go to the top bracket, you end up getting your wage paid through a car allowance. You get, end up getting paid through gym vouchers, childcare vouchers. And with it means tested, that does happen even more. But people say, well, I don't want to get paid fifty pounds a year. Because that's the cut off. I'll have get paid. period. Yeah. hang on a year and I'll take a car allowance.
2: Which is uh, another argument as to why means testing isn't going to mm. work properly. It encourages people to hide their income. We're going to put your wage up. Just do it in some other way. You put my wage up, that means I'm going to lose X amount
0: of benefit. I'll just get it through, like you say, from a car allowance. Something along those that's, lines. That's what happens. Instead of getting tied down in the figures, what do you think is the, the pros and cons for the social aspect of it? So, like for example, families having more money to spend time together and raise kids that are better for society or people can fund to go to university. Do you- so what do you think of the pros of, of that? Or the cons, if you think there's cons? Can I go first on this? Sure, go I'm going yeah, to jump, well, I'm I'm gonna well jump
1: in front. I support UBI, but I don't give a fuck about any of these pros. Or cons, actually. Because the argument that I'm going to pursue for UBI is that I own the natural resources of this earth as much as everyone else and anybody who says otherwise is stealing from me and that should be the same for each one of us we all own an equal share of the land on this earth of the petrol on this earth of the steel and we should be claiming it as our property you are drifting um, a
2: bit close to nationalisation there mate massively massively. <laughs> the <laughs> nationalisation <Colman> of, <laughs> <the nationalization laughs> of land you start, and sc- of, start singing Jamie Colman right? <laughs> 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 oh, John <Boy>. McDonald.
1: <laughs> for the record, I'm not. Um, <laughs> but this is, this is an entitlement based uh, system of ownership. It's coherent with people like Nozick, r- strong right wing theories of ownership. But it's also compatible with elements of Marxism, the things that Ban Kunin said, these elements of the left. And it's that we should get UBI not because it is good for us but because we are entitled to it. It is our birthright. And that, I think, differentiates me and Sean, and so I will maintain. I don't care what the pros are. I don't care what the cons are. We are entitled to it by virtue of existing at this time.
2: I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that in the slightest. He does. I I really don't. That's the thing. (laughs) I'd, I'd really like to, but I don't. really think UBI is a positive thing. I just disagree with what is being done at the moment or the examples which are being put forward, or the experiments, the trials, and that kind of thing. I disagree with how they're doing it, you know, and how they are implementing it, and exactly what they're looking at in some cases. Again, I I totally agree with the idea of it being a global thing. It should be a global thing. We are all inhabitants of this Earth. What I wonder there is how, how would you even implement that? If you're talking a global thing, you need to be in contact with every citizen on this planet Oh, yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, there's, there's I mean, it's a bit of a utopian <laughs> vision, though, isn't it?
1: Oh, well. <laughs> Utopia has negative connotations. I think it's, it's further down the road. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it, you're right, it, it would need some supernational organization. Yeah. But what I will say is that we are progressing in that direction there are kickbacks from Brexit. from Trump from Brexit <laughs> these these are the re reassertion of national borders and national protectionism. sovereignty protectionism but this happens periodically the world wars were blips in this you could say the cold war was a blip in this but the the relentless march of progress blip uh, <laughs> yeah, the <blips. laughs> yeah the the however many millions of deaths um, the blips but I, we are Indisputably moving towards a world that has institutions like the EU, like the UN, and we're so Eurocentric as well when we think about this. The same is happening in the Gulf states, the same is happening in the Pacific region, the Pan-Asian region, across Africa, South America, and North and Central America. The world is creating bigger blocks and they're overlapping and global governance has grown and grown and grown. So... We could we could say that well we need this world government, but it's happening, and the sooner the better.
2: Very good. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping that this this, <laughs> this dividing of the world into different sections isn't going to make another blip as you were. Uh, by... <laughs> the Hunger Games. <goodness. laughs>
1: <laughs> I just hope we're not in section thirteen. But yeah, uh, but I mean, just just
2: <laughs> one one quick note. There's actually oh, the, 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 there yeah. is there is there is one example of UBI which I'm actually okay with. And that, that's that's happened in Oakland, uh, America. But it is. I've never heard it. of Oakland, so it must be a small uh, scale. California.
1: Oh, so what? This is a this is a county, is it?
2: Yes, I think that's what you'd call them. But this is a private company, and they are giving the, a select group a thousand dollars each a month. They're testing a range of different things. But there is no incentive for the people that are involved in the study to do any of the questionnaires or any of the information that the company itself are trying to get from them. They don't have to participate in any of that. They'll still get $1,000 a month for however long the study is. Who is Um, running the study? he's, He's a Silicon Valley...
0: Billionaire. Probably probably Elon Musk. Yeah, No, good. it's not. It's not <laughs> it would surprise it. They're, they're called
1: Y Connect. Do these people think that they're in California, but they're actually on their way to Mars? Yeah. Because yeah, if yeah. it is that, then that's Mars. Why Combinator awesome.
2: Oakland. That's it. I just don't see any of the examples that we've got that are going on. I just don't think they're going to work. I'm that positive now. <laughs> yeah.
0: We've got about 10 minutes left now. For the last section, I want to throw a subject out that you haven't prepared for. Because obviously, in the last week, there's been the the shooting in America. I just wanted to get your both opinions. I know it's hard to condense it, maybe five minutes each, but just give a brief outline about what you think should happen, what you think will happen, and when's the next one going to happen, or will things change? You want to start, Josh? Just a quick one while we're talking about America.
1: Can I? very briefly put this in a historical context. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Because yeah, I, I don't think that we in Britain and Europe, we, we don't understand why America has guns. And it comes from this great movement in 1776 where the British were forced out for, for imposing taxes unfairly on the American people. No taxation without representation. It was the cry America was forged through the armed uprising against an external power and the right to bear arms is a hangover from that. The right to bear arms is not only a physical barrier between authoritarian government and the people, it's a symbolic gesture. And I think we lose the symbolism sometimes. So trying to explain the monarchy to Americans, it doesn't make any sense. But it makes sense in England because we understand the symbolic nature and we understand the history of it. So, so that does need to be said. However, <laughs> the, the the fourth amendment or whatever it is that says that the, the right to bear arms will not be infringed did not apply to fully automatic, <laughs> yeah, um, awesome. high capacity magazine wow. bearing weapons. Yeah, and I agree. Well, and I don't agree. Sorry, I can understand why they want to hold on to this right to bear arms, but th- but that does not explain why you should be able to buy over the counter without a background check. In fact, in fact, why you should be able to buy at all a magazine that holds a hundred bullets? Mm. Because th- there is nothing in that that speaks to to the, the intentions of the Fourth Amendment in the same way that an American citizen shouldn't be able to have a fucking nuclear ICBM in their backyard under the Fourth Amendment. I'm saying Fourth, I'm assuming it is Fourth. Um, and so from that point of view, I think Trump might just redeem himself a bit on this. It looks like he's he's making the right noises to a certain extent. That means nothing, admittedly. But if Trump were to uh, to put some background checks in that would change the whole perception of his presidency for me.
0: Well, you know, when Trump came into power, gun sales went down, and a big company that sold guns had actually gone bankrupt. And when Obama was in power, the people purchase more guns because they're worried they're going to get taken away. And now, and now a president comes in is pro-gun in brackets, even though he's not necessarily, but obviously he's Republican yeah. and sponsored by them. The gun sales ironically go down with a president like that. So it's better for gun companies to have someone like Obama who. Because it scares people, and the, edge of the end up buy more. That's what the economics of it is. That's why it's all for America. I guess that's that's a really good free economics uh, <laughs> piece. There. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean, what do you think then? We've only got five minutes. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it,
2: it, obviously, coming from a from a British perspective, it, it's I totally agree. It's it's completely ridiculous that you can buy an automatic rifle in America, you know, with a magazine that you can actually extend to hold more rounds than the magazine was originally supposed to have. One, just a, a, an interesting thing that, that I experienced when I was in Dallas, um, staying with a friend. Um, I was speaking to his, his nephew who just turned 18. And for his birthday, his parents bought him an AR-15, which is an automatic rifle for his 18th birthday. Now, discussing this with him, with this, this, this young lad, um, he said he was really disappointed. And I said, what were you disappointed about? He said, well, I, I wanted a handgun, but you're not allowed to own a handgun until you're 21. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, you can conceal a handgun. You can't conceal an automatic rifle. To which I said, but you can kill a hell of a lot more people with an automatic rifle than you can do a handgun. And when I took this subject further with him, I said, you know, why do you need it? He said, well, I keep it under my bed for protection. Protection from what? He said, well, protection from if my house gets broken into, it means I've got got a gun there to protect me. I said, well, you know, has your house ever been broken into before? Do you know people on your street that have been burgled? No. You know, the, the, there is no reasoning there. All it is is, you know, maybe it's scare tactics from the media, okay. It's ridiculous in my perspective, especially when it's a regular or semi-regular occurrence to have mass shootings in America and particularly in schools. When what, what, what um, it's on the
0: news, do you even think twice when you
2: see it on the news? Now? Oh, I mean, I, even... I, I watch it and I, I'm attentive to it, of course I am, because it's an awful thing to happen. But, you know, the, 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 last, it, the last major shooting in the UK... Was in 1996. Mm. The Dunblane shootings. And what happened after that? Anti gun legislation. You know, again, a lot of people in America seem to believe that we cannot access guns in the UK. You can legally own a shotgun. I mean, yeah, you can't buy an automatic rifle and you can't buy handguns. You can own a hunting rifle, which has more than enough capability to kill someone. We still have that culture of hunting, which is so popular in America. We still do stuff like that and we still do it with rifles. The idea that implementing legislation in America to completely remove guns, it's never going to work anyway. And I don't think that's ever actually somebody's point. I think that the argument is to get rid of the guns that can kill people en masse. And I think that's a very beneficial thing if it ever came into play.
1: Can I, I just, this is something that continually bugs me, because it's not just actually about these American school shootings, but um, there are studies that show... There are studies that show that... Um, every time a shooter like this is portrayed in the media and named and their photograph is shown that you spawn several copycats that do not get reported. And it's the same with terrorist incidents and with other violent crimes. There's, there is a sequence of events, all of which led to this person doing it. And, Gun ownership is a very significant one. Trump has picked out mental health, which is, you could argue, is a contributory factor. Certainly better health provision, mental health provision would have restricted it. Better social care would have restricted it. This guy came from a really troubled background. Mm -hmm. Another thing that could restrict it is more responsible reporting. So not naming them, not showing their picture, because these shooters get idealized, and if certain parts of the media and certain parts of the the web, especially.
2: Whenever something like this happens, and when it's a a white person, it's there's been another school shooting. So if that was a a Muslim man, unlike the most recent one, then it would be a terrorist incident. But at the end of the day, to me, it is still a terrorist act. The point of the the reason why this person has gone out to kill people, well, he's that he's gone out to kill people. He's gone out to inflict terror. That is terrorism. So why not acknowledge it as that? I mean, okay, there isn't the backing from a bigger group. But the, the most recent one, he wanted to... Uh, he had a Nazi memorabilia. You know, he was a white supremacist. So is that not white supremacist terrorism? Yeah,
1: you're right. If, if a, um, for want of a better word, a brown person committed a school shooting, if their internet history showed... IS material there would be an Islamic terrorist. Yeah. If a white person does it and they've got Nazi memorabilia, they're not a white supremacist. You're right, there is a bias in the The triple aren't there. to Behind the Times with Will, Sean and me, Josh. Please join us next time for more or catch us on Twitter at Behind the Times underscore. See you next time.